Well, it's a joy again to be with you this Lord's Day, this Lord's Day evening, and it's a joy to resume our study of the book of Hosea. It's been a while, hasn't it? I had to look back in my files, and I realized that the last time we were in the book of Hosea, it was before Thanksgiving, and that night, Dwayne Nelson did announcements, which tells you it's been some time. There's obviously been a lot going on here at church on on Sunday evenings uh, since we last studied this great book. We had the Christmas holiday. We had a couple of guest preachers. We had a couple of one-off sermons. We had the church-wide update last Sunday evening, and at long last, we're ready to dive back in. Now, it has been quite a while since we were in the book of Hosea, and I thought it would be profitable for us to spend some time uh, this evening doing a more in-depth review of where we've been so far. We won't do this every Sunday night, to sort of shake the cobwebs out uh, before we resume our study of Hosea chapter 5 tonight. So by way of review, the first three chapters of this book, and feel free to flip through along in chapters 1 through 4 as we do some review here, but in, this, in the first three chapters, we see sort of this bumpy ride, uh, because in these three chapters, we are seated, as it were, in the living room of Hosea and Gomer, and we're given these insights into all that was happening in their home, right? the prostitution, the adultery, the contention, the heartache. Uh, the grief, the familial strife, and all of it that we saw, the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows, were representative of Yahweh's own relationship with his bride, namely Israel. Um, Back in Hosea chapter 1, feel free to turn there with me, uh, we saw how Hosea's family was initially formed as God commanded Hosea to marry a harlot, a prostitute, Gomer, uh, to be his wife. We saw how God gave Hosea this instruction so that he, God, could teach a lesson to Israel about her own spiritual whoredom and idolatry. Uh, We saw that Hosea immediately followed the Lord's command. Hosea 1.3, so he went, following the Lord's command, and married Gomer the prostitute to be his wife. Uh, We saw that Hosea's wife gave birth to three children, only one of whom was Hosea's, and the other two of which came uh, from her other lovers. Uh, We saw that God directed Hosea to give these children very specific names. Uh, Jezreel, which means bloodshed or or scattered. Uh, Lo-Ruhama, which means no mercy. And Lo-Ami, which means not my people. That was all in chapter 1. And chapter 1 gave us this very dark and bleak picture. Not only about the marriage between Hosea and Gomer, but the marriage between God, Yahweh, and Israel. But as we rounded the corner from Hosea 1 into the beginning of Hosea 2, some rays of hope started to to poke through, starting with the word yet in Hosea 1.10. And over the course of those three verses, Hosea 1.10, Hosea 1.11, and then Hosea 2.1, we saw the the tone change, and we saw some of the, the focus shift to this hopeful future day for Israel. Uh, this day of future restoration of God's original chosen people, this day on which God would renew his promises to them, and this day on which there would be a reconciliation of the divisions that existed between Israel and Judah, uh, a day on which a king would be reinstated, and a day on which Israel would return to her land. And as we saw when we studied those three verses at the end of Hosea 1 and at the beginning of Hosea 2, those are future-oriented prophecies that will one day come to fruition in the future millennial kingdom reign of the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the scene turned negative again in Hosea 2.2 all the way into 2.13. And there we see Yahweh uh, using the, the, the broken nuptials between Hosea and Gomer as sort of this divinely ordained illustration as he's portraying the judgment that he was going to bring on his people, the people of Israel. And that section of Hosea 2 begins with these words from Hosea to Gomer, Hosea 2, 2, contend with your mother, contend for she is not my wife and I am not your husband. And and you might remember, things had gotten so bad between Hosea and Gomer, between the husband and wife at that point, that he didn't even deliver those words directly to her. Instead, he had the kids, they're always caught in the middle, deliver the message to the mother on his behalf. And after that, God proceeded to issue threat after threat against his people of judgment that was going to come upon them in the future. Hosea 2, 3, he says, I will strip her naked 
and expose her as on the day when she was born. I will also make her like a wilderness, make her like desert land, and slay her with thirst. Hosea 2.6, I will hedge her way up with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Hosea 2.9, I, I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in its season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. Uh, 2.10, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. And no one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her festal assemblies. Uh, 2.12, I will destroy her vines and fig trees. And then 13, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and her jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. See, God was going to bring all this judgment on Israel in this 8th century BC context because as we just read there in verse 13, she forgot me. Israel had forgotten her Lord. But then as we saw in the rest of Hosea 2, from 14 down to 23, God hadn't forgotten Israel. She had forgotten him, but he hadn't forgotten his bride. So as we wrapped up Hosea 2, we saw this rather stunning reversal as we worked through another series of I will statements coming from the lips of the Lord. Uh, And these I will statements were not pointing to judgment on his people, but instead These were I will statements that were rooted in tenderness toward his people, care for his people, uh, love for his people. And these are displayed throughout this section where he says things, this second half of chapter 2, like, I will allure her. I will give her vineyards. I will make a covenant for them. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. I will betroth you to me. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her. To summarize all of this, a future day was coming uh, on which the blemished bride, uh, Israel, would, would be wooed again and brought back and made God's own once more. And, and then we walked through Hosea chapter 3. And once again, the theme there was of, of Israel's repentance, future repentance and restoration. That was central to those verses there, especially verses 4 and 5. It says, For the sons of Israel... Hosea 3, 4, will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So at the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, we saw that there was this yet glimmer of hope for Israel. Yes, she was estranged from her God. Yes, she was stiff-necked and stubborn and rebellious. And yes, she was soon to be punished by being taken away from the land. But her exile and her estrangement wouldn't last forever. And then, in our last time together in this book, again, back before Thanksgiving, we worked our way through Hosea chapter 4. And as we turned there, we saw that we were officially done with the whole Hosea and Gomer saga. That's really in chapters 1 through 3. Now the focus was entirely on the relationship between God and Israel, including God's words of warning to Israel, his rebuke of Israel, his reminders to Israel, his pleas with Israel, his threats to Israel, and as we saw last time in chapter 4, his contention with Israel. See, starting in chapter 4, we, we moved out of Hosea's house Uh, from the household dispute between this man and his wayward bride over the prostitution and the adultery and the out-of-wedlock children and the threats of divorce and the talking through the children and the picking up of Gomer from her lover's house and the awkward car ride ride home after that, Uh, we move from Hosea's house and all of its brokenness and ugliness and sin, which typified the brokenness in the relationship between God and Israel, we move from Hosea's house to the courthouse. And last time in Hosea 4, we saw God was serving as prosecutor in that courthouse as he announced his various charges against Israel. A charge number one was that the people of Israel, charge number one was against the careless people of Israel. Uh, we had mapped that out in verses 1 through 3. Uh, charge number two was against the corrupt priests of Israel. That was in verses 4 through 10. And then charge number three was the, about the compromised priorities of Israel 
which we saw in verses 11 all the way down to verse 19. Well, this evening, as we study Hosea chapter 5, we are still in the courtroom, uh, but God here is portrayed not so much as the prosecuting attorney, but, but more so as the judge, as he now renders his verdict against this apostate nation. And with that, we're going to get into our text for this evening, Hosea chapter 5. And, and fair warning, kind of like last time, this is going to be one of those fasten your seatbelts kind of evenings because I plan to go through this entire chapter tonight, all 15 verses, as we take the section as a whole. Let's go ahead and read it together. By together, I mean I'll read it. You sit there and listen. And then we'll go through it verse by verse. Hosea 5, starting in verse 1. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land." Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound an alarm at Beth-Avon. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like rottenness to the house of Judah, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly Seek me. Now, Hosea is a notoriously difficult book to preach, and I'm not saying that as a cop-out. Um, there have been countless numbers of people who have come up to me in recent months and asked me the question, why? <laughs> why did you choose to preach the book of Hosea? And I'm going to save that answer for another time, cliffhanger. But the point is this. As is, as is true of many of the prophetic works in the Old Testament, it can be difficult to track the flow of what's happening in this book. And that's because some of the events that are recorded are, are recorded and grounded in what was present-day Israel for Hosea. And some of the events that are recorded are, are future events, but they're near-future events from Hosea's perspective. And then other events are recorded in this book that are actually far-future events, even events that have not taken place from our vantage point yet. So it's a tough book to read. It's a tough book to study. Thankfully, we have the Spirit of God living in us to illuminate what's there. But it can be tough to outline and tough to, to sketch out. But I've given it my best attempt here in Hosea 5. Here's how I've outlined it. And the name of the sermon is, The Lord Announces His Verdict. In verses 1 through 3, we're going to see Yahweh's firm verdict. In verses 4 through 6, we'll see Israel's futile response. In verses 7 through 11, we'll see Israel's future judgment. In verses 12 through 14, we're going to see Yahweh's fury unveiled. And in verse 15, we'll see Israel's faith predicted. So we're going to start with the firm verdict in verses 1 through 3. And as I've already mentioned, going all the way back to Hosea 4, we're in a courtroom here. This is a lawsuit scene. And even looking at Hosea 4.1, going back a chapter, we see the legal nature of the proceedings that we're dealing with here. Look at Hosea 4.1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Now, now here in chapter 5, as we move forward a chapter, 
Yahweh is serving as judge, and he's declaring his verdict, which we see in these first three verses. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king, for the judgment applies to you. For you've been a snare at Mitzpah, and a net spread out on Tabor. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now Ephraim, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Now look at those first few words there in verse 1. It says, hear this, O priest, give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. And with those words, all three facets of corrupt Israelite society, the priestly class, the royal class, the laity, are being summoned before the bar of God's justice. And they're being called upon to, play, to pay close attention to the verdict which is about to be read off. He says, for the judgment applies to you. That is, the judgment that is about to be given applies to every level of this wicked and sinful society. No one is going to be spared the verdict that's about to follow. There's going to be no special treatment. There will be no plea deals. There will be no avoiding the divine hammer that's about to fall. And then the words of the judgment or or the, the verdict. He says, for you have been a snare at mitzvah and a net spread out on Tabor. Now, there were several towns in the the region that had the name Mitzpah, but the one mentioned here is likely Mitzpah of of Gilead, which was located east of the Jordan. And and Tabor was a a majestic mountain in the plain of Galilee. Now, both of these places had at some point in Israel's history been places of authentic worship of Yahweh. But by Hosea's day, both of these places had apparently become places of false worship, So, meaning the selection of these names here in the prophecy was not accidental. Rather, the the mention of these names emphasizes just how deeply false worship had had permeated and penetrated these once holy and consecrated places. And, And so prevalent and wicked was the false worship that was taking place here that God here says that they have been a snare at mitzvah and a net spread out on Tabor. Now, if you've done any sort of reading in the Old Testament, you would know that in the context, whenever you see those words snare or or net, it's usually in the context of God warning Israel about becoming ensnared or trapped or, or taken by the various pagan people groups of the land. But here it's reversed, where he's saying, as he indicts and judges Israel as a nation and as a people, that they themselves are workers of iniquity and corruption and immorality. From the priests to the kings to the lady, it's the guilt of the nation as a whole that's being declared here. And and Israel could not hide its sin from this all-wise, all-knowing God. They themselves were the, the snare. They themselves were the net. They were the ones that were causing other people around them to stumble, to trip. They were called to be a blessing to the nations. That was one of the missions of this early society. But instead, they'd been corrupted by those nations, and now they themselves were a source of corruption to those nations, as they're now singled out here as being a snare and a net spread out. This is a really precipitous slide, and a sad and tragic and awful outcome for Israel. Well, the verdict continues in verse 2. It says, The revolters have gone deep in depravity, but I will chastise all of them. The revolters. That's the label that Yahweh is now using for his people. The revolters. Quite the slide from the the days of Deuteronomy chapter 7 when Yahweh singles out and sets his love on this people, not because they were so great or because they were so mighty or large or, or worthy or faithful, but because he loved them. And now we have him saying about that same group of people, they're the revolters. We've gone from saying through the pen of Moses in Deuteronomy 7 in 1445 BC, the Lord loved this people, to this, this time in history, mid-8th century BC, the time of Hosea's day, God calling this people revolters. Not just any revolters, though. Look what it says. The revolters have gone deep in depravity which is a reference to Israel's, again, religious apostasy and spiritual whoredom. 
The relationship between Yahweh and Israel, it's probably quite the understatement here, but had taken a turn for the worse. It had completely soured. Those whom God loved, those whom he had set his love upon, he is now rendering his verdict on, and he's calling them revolters. And in that same vein, Yahweh now says in the second part of verse 2, but I will chastise all of them. Now that word chastise is the same word that's often translated discipline. And it refers to severe punishment that's designed to restore one to proper behavior. And there's actually an element of hope in this world because it implies correction rather than final punishment. Discipline is an expression of love that arises out of a close relationship. Uh, that's true of earthly fathers. Uh, Proverbs thirteen twenty four: He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him. Same word, diligently. And that's true of God our Father. It's true of our earthly fathers and true of God our Father. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Or you could write down Hebrews 12, 5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Well, here in Hosea, uh, God is disciplining. He's, He's chastising his people in love so that they would return to him and acknowledge him. And how had Israel gotten herself in this situation? Well, as we continue on in in reading the verdict in verse 3, we get our answer. Look at verse 3. He says, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. Now, right away, you'll note that both Ephraim and Israel are mentioned here. And in this context, Israel and Ephraim, they they make up together the, the northern kingdom. And as they're being used here, it's in contrast to Judah, the the southern kingdom. And what we see described here in verse 3 and in other places where we see Hosea, or excuse me, Israel and Ephraim mentioned together is the northern kingdom being described jointly, all ten tribes from the north. Yahweh here is reminding all of Israel, uh, the entire northern kingdom here in verse 3, that he is omniscient. Nothing is hidden from me, he says. He, He sees everything. The verdict that's being handed down here in this passage is not being handed down based on hearsay or shaky and unreliable witnesses. No, the the all-wise, all-knowing, omniscient God of everything has seen it all. Though Israel may not know God, and though Israel may think that God doesn't see what they're up to, he reminds them here that he certainly does know them. I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. Though their sin may have been committed with some degree of stealth and craftiness, they cannot hide from an omniscient God. There is no pulling the wool over his eyes. And what is it that he had seen? Uh, What is it that he knew about them? Uh, Well, the rest of verse 3 tells us. It says, For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Uh, the Lord, in other words, had, had witnessed with total clarity, with, with perfect high-definition resolution. Before there was such a thing as high-definition resolution, Israel's sordid track record of spiritual prostitution and impurity and uncleanness, which led to this nation now being in the position it finds itself in, facing exile at the hands of a foreign invader and sitting under the judgment of God. We get a, a summary taste of what's being described here in this, uh, this verdict in verses 1 through 3 in Psalm 106. Uh, Psalm 106, verses 34 through 39. Uh, there the psalmist, speaking of Israel, says, uh, They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. This is speaking of the Israelites not commanding the other surrounding nations. But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. See, there, Israel is the one who's ensnared. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices, and look at this familiar language, and played the harlot in their deeds. 
Israel's sin was not hidden from Yahweh, just as our sin is today is not hidden from him. Uh, no human creature, whether in ancient Israel or today in modern society, is capable of hiding not only our actions from God, but our thoughts from God. He sees it all and he knows it all. And in Israel's case, they were about to face judgment for their sinful, idolatrous practices. So that takes us through the first part of chapter 5, Yahweh's firm verdict. Next, we're going to see Israel's futile response in verses 4 through 6. I'll read it first. It says, Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but he will not, they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Let's pick it up in verse 4 where it says that their deeds will not allow them to return to their God for a spirit of harlotry is within them and they do not know the Lord. The people of Israel had become so entangled with their sin so engrossed with the worship of of false gods and idols, so overpowered with what's described here as a spirit of harlotry, an outright devotion to religious infidelity, that the text here says their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. Now here in verse 4, that word there for return in, in Hebrew is shuv, which is the same word from which we would get the word repent. Return, repent. And repentance on Israel's part was precluded for the time being because they were so given over to and so enslaved by their sin. You know, later in the New Testament, we'll see examples of this very idea of of individuals being enslaved uh, to their sin. Romans 6 is a, a chief example. But there's other examples where you see this undercurrent in the New Testament of people being unable, apart from the divine grace, a divine work of the grace of God, to repent and return to him because of their deadness, because of their enslavement to their wicked ways. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Or Titus 3.3, speaking of the old man, says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. In Hosea's day, that's what was happening on the national level with Israel. The Israelites of this time were prisoners of their own sinful habits and practices, and short of a divine intervention and assistance from God, they were, the text says, incapable of returning to their God. And that was because there was this spirit of harlotry within them, and they do not know the Lord. Now, those last words, they do not know the Lord, actually links back to Hosea 4.1, where Yahweh makes his charges against Israel. We've already read it, but let's read it again. Hosea 4.1, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness, and here we go, or knowledge of God in the land. And now in 5.4, it says, they do not know the Lord. See, a return to God, finally, could only be brought to pass until Israel realized the error of their ways, until they repented of their ways, and they came to truly know God. And not just intellectually, but relationally and, and obediently. The futility of, of any response by Israel to the verdict here is further underscored by what we see here in verse 5 now. Moving on to verse 5, it says, Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. Now it starts with the pride of Israel. That's not a good thing. That's not like the, the, the good sort of pride where like certain celebrities are called the pride of a certain hometown or a, a ship is the pride of a certain port or harbor. No, here the, the pride of Israel refers to this nation's heedless sense of self-importance, their nationalistic arrogance, the stubbornness of their will, and now they're incriminated. And that's because pride is always blinding. 
Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before what? Destruction, other translations, the fall. Uh, and we see here in the middle of verse 5 that, that Israel and Ephraim are now stumbling in their iniquity, it says. They had been set apart by God. They had been appointed and chosen to walk on a certain path by God. And on that path, as I mentioned already, they were to be a light to the nations. But now, because of their pride, they had stumbled. They were staggering. They, they were tottering. And this whole thing was about to come crashing down in judgment. And all because of their wickedness and their idolatry, and their pride. And as if that weren't bad enough, the end of verse 5 tells us that the stumbling of Israel in the north was now going to lead to the stumbling of Judah in the south. Judah has also, it says, stumbled with them. Uh, The stumbling of Israel and Ephraim would catch up to Judah as well. Unrestrained sin always impacts others. You know, I come from California, and I always think about how the, the sins of that state always impact the other states. You know, Oregon and, and Nevada, they always want to be like California. They want to latch on to whatever sin the California government's passing or, or, or favoring and, and, and keep with the times and do the same thing. That's what's happening here. Like Israel in the north, Judah in the south would eventually stumble off the righteous path and fall into the judgment in the hands of God. And that's exactly what we see recorded in the Old Testament in both the Kings and the Chronicles. Well, rather than reflecting on its sinful ways and rather than showing any remorse and rather than repenting and turning to God, Israel, in its pride, we're going to see, resorted to the sacrifice of animals and to the shedding of blood in an effort to make peace with God and to return to God. Look at the first part of verse 6. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord. But that's just hypocritical ritualism. This is devoid of any genuine loyalty to God. And because of that, this would not be effective. That's why he says at the end of verse 6, but they will not find him. And that really should have come as no surprise, considering what we see all over the Old Testament about what Yahweh was really after. Was God ever really after blood and sacrifice? No, he was always after, has always been after, hearts that turn to him in faith. Hosea 6.6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah 1.10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Now one might ask, well, aren't the people of God to seek the Lord, as the people of Israel appear to be doing here? Yes, they are. The people of God are to seek him in order that they may find him. That's what the prophet Azariah said in Second Chronicles 15.2, it says, And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But right after that, in that same verse, again, Second Chronicles 15.2, it says, But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. That's what had happened here in Israel during Hosea's day. The people had forsaken Yahweh, as evidenced by their, their religious apostasy and their spiritual adultery. And as a result now, he had forsaken them. In other words, it was too late. So try as they might to offer sacrifices and offerings as some way to regain favor with their God, it wasn't going to work. And when you think about it, it was awfully presumptuous of them to think that by simply slitting the throat of a bull or a lamb or a turtle dove, just going through the motions in some sort of shameless and thinly veiled attempt to manipulate God without any genuine repentance or remorse on their part, with any sort of, without any sort of genuine heart change or transformation, that that was somehow going to cover up for decades and centuries of outright rebellion against him? No, it wasn't going to work that way. It was too late. Verse 6, they will go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. And that's really the worst of it. That last sentence, he has withdrawn from them. In a way, he was giving them what they wanted. You know, up to this point, the people of Israel had acted and functioned as though God wasn't there without acknowledging him 
as though they didn't want him or they didn't need him. So God here is saying he's going to allow them to experience what a complete absence from God is really like as he withdraws from them. Now, it's really difficult to convey how terrifying that reality actually is, especially for somebody, Israel in this day, or for us in the church today, who consider themselves to be one of God's people. See, God was their source of hope, and he was their source of protection and provision and security. And now he says he's gone. He's withdrawn from them. Now, now his withdrawal here should not mean that he's given up any aspect of his omnipresence or omniscience or his sovereignty. He will always be all of those things. So what does that mean, that he's withdrawn from them? Well, to say that he's withdrawn from them was simply a way of saying he has left them to their own devices. He's abandoned them to exercise their own so-called wisdom. They're left now to their own choices, and they're left to their own consequences of their own choices. They're utterly alone now, on their own. They wanted to be free from God. They got what they wanted, and it's terrifying. So we've seen the firm verdict. We've seen Israel's futile response. Next, in verses 7 through 11, we have Israel's future judgment. Verse 7, they have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound an alarm at Beth Haven, behind you, Benjamin. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. So starting in verse 7, where he says, They have dealt treacherously against the Lord, for they have borne illegitimate children. The the, the dealing treacherously with the Lord is referring again to their spiritual infidelity. But by prostituting itself or themselves after by chasing after false gods, much like Gomer prostituted herself by chasing after all the false lovers, the result was Israel, it says here, had born illegitimate children, or the people of Israel. Now, surely there were men, Israelite men, who had somehow at this stage of history become involved with cultic temple prostitutes as they worshipped the various false gods of the day. And surely some of those sexual encounters led to pregnancies, which led to actual illegitimate children. I don't think that's actually at the heart of what's being referred to here. Instead, what is being condemned here are the, the generational consequences of Israelites intermixing with these pagan tribes and these cultures that surrounded them which was warned against over and over in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. You shall not intermarry with them, speaking of the, the tribes of the land. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take your, their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me, this is God speaking, to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And we don't have to get too far into to Israelite history. We get just to, just to Solomon, and we see him succumb to this very temptation as he marries uh, the various wives and takes on all the concubines and then the consequences that flow from that. Well, further words of judgment come at the, the end of verse 7. He says, the new moon will devour them with their land. Now, the new moon, the reference there, ties back to Israel's involvement in, in various religious festivals during this time, including a new moon celebration celebration that we saw back in Hosea chapter 2. And though these festivals had some sort of at least external religious aim and religious description, what's being said here is these would not stave off the destruction that was coming upon Israel. Rather, they would hasten it. Because like their, their futile offerings and sacrifices, the people's ritualistic participation in, the, in these festivals They weren't going to placate Yahweh if the heart hadn't really been changed. It would only provoke him as he brought judgment upon them. And the result is the new moon. They would be devoured in the land, defeated. And these invaders are getting closer and closer, and the day of judgment is getting nearer and nearer, which is why we see the words here in verse 8, Blow the horn in Gibeah. The trumpet in Ramah, sound an alarm at Beth-Avon, behind you, Benjamin. 
So this verse opens with this battle cry and this, this triple repetition here. Blow the horn and blow the trumpet and sound the alarm. It's underscoring the urgency of the situation. These are, are way more serious than the tornado alerts that apparently many of you ignore in the summertime. Um, no, no, judgment here is, is, is threatened. And the threat is serious and the threat is imminent. And the enemy is already upon them. And, and Israel's watchmen here are to sound the alarm. Not only that, though. The fear here is that this judgment is going to be massive and comprehensive. And we can say that because of the geographic markers that are used here in this section of Hosea. You see, you have to remember that Hosea was a prophet to the northern tribes. And what he's doing here, as Israel, or excuse me, as Assyria comes from the northeast, as you're sitting in Israel... He's warning the cities of Gibeah, Ramah, and Beth-Avon, and as well as the territory of Benjamin. Well, all of those places were in the south, far south of the Israel stronghold. So the idea here is that the northern border is about to, to break as the Assyrians are preparing to, to come in and invade Israel. But he's, what's being done here is there's already a warning that's been giving, being given to the southern tribes and the southern cities and the southern territories because apparently the Assyrians are going to comprehensively sweep through the land and, and conquer and take over all of it. I couldn't come up with a better illustration than this. This would be like if we here in Lincoln caught wind that South Dakota was about to invade Nebraska. And we heard that they were not only going to overtake Nebraska, but they were going to overtake every part of the state, south, north, east, and west. We would want, I had to do some geographical research for this, the, the good folks in Valentine to let us know down here in Lincoln that that was the plan of the South Dakotans, right? We'd want to know that, hey, they have these plans to take over not just the northern part of our state, but the whole state, so sound the alarm. Let us know so we can get... Gather the troops and blast the air raid sirens and all the rest. And that's the idea here. The, the Assyrian invasion from the north was going to impact not only Israel in the north, but Judah down in the south. And that's what we see recorded in Second uh, Chronicles 28, where both north and south are, are sacked and destroyed by Assyria. So the signals and the warnings, they were ultimately futile because this call to arms that we see in verse 8 could not save Israel. Look at verse 9. It says, If Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Yeah, Ephraim, all of Israel, would be devastated. And it would happen in this way. And it was certain to take place just as it's recorded here because of what we see at the end of verse 9. Note what it says. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke, among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. I don't want to lose sight of those words there. I declare, Yahweh speaking here, what is sure. God's proclamations, God's pronouncements, his statements, his predictions, his words are infallible, inviolable. And at some point, each one of them will be fulfilled. And Ephraim, it says here in verse 9, will become a desolation, a ravaged wasteland, an eyesore, a shame to its neighbors, because God had decreed that that very thing would happen. And he, in fact, had decreed that that very thing would happen some 700 years earlier, back in Leviticus 26. There on the, on the plains of Sinai, as Moses is, is given the law, and he's now giving the law to the Israelites and explaining to them the, the, the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience that attach to the law. And in Leviticus 26, 32 and 33, he says, I will make the land desolate so that your enemies who settle in it will be appalled over it. You, however... I will scatter among the nations and will draw out a sword after you as your land, talking to the Israelites, becomes desolate and your cities become waste. The, the judgment that was soon to come upon Israel in Hosea's day, in other words, was linked directly to the veracity of God's word. It, it truly never fails or fails to accomplish its purposes. It is certain and trustworthy and reliable, just as God himself is certain and trustworthy and reliable. Well, unlike the God who was about to judge them, that the people who were about to be judged were anything but trustworthy 
which we pick up on in verse 10. It says, The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. Now, moving boundaries was clearly forbidden under the old uh, Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 19, 14. Uh, To move a boundary was a form of of, of thievery, theft, uh, because you were basically claiming or or annexing land which didn't belong to you. It It was shady criminal behavior. And one who illegally moved boundaries, actually, under, in Deuteronomy 27, 17, was to be cursed. Well, well, the princes of Judah here are singled out as being those who are like those who move a boundary. It's not saying that the princes of Judah were actually moving boundaries, but they were engaging in immoral behavior, which was tantamount to or, or like moving a boundary. And so Yahweh here says at the end of verse 10, on them... I will pour out my wrath like water. As we saw back in verse 5, in fact, Judah was not exempt from the judgment that was coming upon their their northern neighbors. Judah could not assume that it would be safe because Israel would sort of be its buffer protecting them from Assyria. No, the Assyrian army was able to to readily reach as far down as Judah and bring judgment and, and calamity upon the southern tribes as well. Well, as of Hosea's taking down of this prophecy, apparently this judgment had started to be executed on Israel. Look at verse 11. It says, Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Now, right there, in reverse order, you have the actions and the attitudes and the consequences that those actions and attitudes bring about. Ephraim, it says, was determined to follow man's command. And those words, follow man's command, have been translated differently in various versions of the English Bible. In the NAS, we have, he was determined to follow man's command. In the ESV, it says, he was determined to go after filth. In the HCSB, it says, for he determined to follow what is worthless. I think each is actually a fair translation because the underlying Hebrew has a very, a very wide range of meaning there. The point, though, is that the Israelites here had, had followed after man's command. They had followed after the filth of the world. They had compromised and, and given in to the allurement of the culture. And now they were going to pay the price. Uh, as they were about to be, it says, oppressed and crushed in judgment. Now, the, the judgment they were, that they were going to face was ultimately not due to Assyria's imperialistic ambitions and spirit. Actually, Israel's troubles were attributable to her own sin. That's why they're being crushed in judgment. Well, up to this point in the chapter, there's this very real sense that the Assyrians are coming if they're not already on on Israel's doorstep. But in the next few verses, we're about to see that something much worse is yet to happen. Because as we see in verses 12 through 14, a greater threat was coming. And this is our next major heading for tonight. Yahweh's fury unveiled. Yahweh's fury unveiled. He says, therefore, I am like a moth, verse 12, to Ephraim. And like rottenness to the house of Judah. When when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. A war for Israel against the the mighty military machine of Assyria was already a terrifying prospect. Especially considering, as we saw back in verse 6, that God had already withdrawn his protection from Israel. But, but even worse for Israel would have been a war against God himself. And that's exactly what we see being described here. God has not just turned his people over to their own desires and lusts and consequences, as we saw earlier in this chapter. What part of this passage, at least, is telling us is that God now is at war with his own people. He is silently but effectively leading his people toward destruction. To Ephraim, it says, he was like a moth. Therefore, I'm a moth to Ephraim, verse 12. And of course, moths are destructive agents, specifically with our clothing. Further, God says, 
He is like rottenness to the house of Judah. And the rot that's being referred to here is an agent that eventually causes bones to decay. We see it referred to in Job and in the Proverbs. But both moths and and rottenness, the idea here is that they bring about irreversible consumption and destruction and ruin. And so through this figurative language, God here is saying that he is sovereignly in control of this whole scene that's brewing between the nations. He's sovereign not only over his people, Israel, but he's sovereign over Assyria. And in fact, he is causing Assyria to serve him and his purposes ultimately as Israel's invaders to teach them a lesson, to chastise them, to discipline them for the many grievous sins they had committed against him. Now, even as God here is bringing his, this judgment upon them, Israel's response is still misdirected. Look at verse 13. It says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, referring to the affliction they received from God, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jareb, but he isn't able to heal you or to cure you of your wound. The nation's response here to its deterioration was entirely misdirected. They're, they're following the path here of political expediency. The, the northern kingdom here is turning to their own invader, Assyria. And this likely is a reference to the alliance that Hosea, not to be confused with Hosea, sought to forge with Assyria, which is recorded in 2 Kings 17. The king there, though, was not named Jareb. In fact, there is no record of a king, Jareb, in Assyria. What is happening here is that Jareb in Hebrew means warrior, and Hosea here is, is simply acknowledging the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser, as the great king here, calling him Jareb because he's this mighty warrior king that Israel sought to pay a tribute to. But the main point in all of this is that rather than returning to their god, The God who loved them, the God who they had turned their back on, the God who actually could do something about their current plight. Instead of going to that God, they they linked arms with a pagan nation. Again, but not just any pagan nation, a bloodthirsty pagan nation which had its sights set on conquering them. Israel, in in seeking assistance from Assyria, was, was effectively saying, Dear Assyria, Please spare me from my God. It was odd, it was sad, and ultimately it was a pathetic maneuver which didn't work. At the end of verse 13 it says, But he, meaning the king of Assyria, is unable to heal you or cure you of your wound. And that's historically provable. Assyria wasn't running a charity. Uh, They weren't in the business of caring for their own prey. They were a greedy, land-grabbing nation who would eventually topple Israel. So Israel seeks, to, seeks help from their enemy, Assyria. They don't get the help they wanted. Now they're fully exposed and unable to defend themselves. And look at what comes next in verse 14. For I, again, this is God speaking, will be like a lion to Ephraim. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away, and there will be none to deliver. The judgment here of Yahweh against his people is no longer portrayed as being slow and progressive like like it would be with a moth or with rot. Instead, it's portrayed here as being sudden and violent. The way a lion's destruction of its prey is sudden and violent. He will be, it says, like a lion to Ephraim and a young lion to the house of Judah. Now, is that saying that God is actually going to physically turn into a lion and physically tear apart actual Israelites? No, it's, it's a simile. He will be like a lion. And the way he'll deal with them surely sounds similar to the way a lion deals with its prey. It says he will tear to pieces and go away. And carry away with none to deliver. All that's being said here is that he is going to physically afflict them. He would tear them to pieces through the Assyrian armies. He would tear to pieces the apostate and unrepentant people of Israel through those armies. And that's referring here to a loss of life. Meaning there would be casualties on the battlefield. And then it says, I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. And that's simply language of exile. Israel would, in fact, be carried away by the Assyrians as they were taken into exile as a consequence for their sin. And again, make no mistake, 
While it was Assyria doing the slaughtering and the conquering and the capturing, it was all done under God's sovereign and guiding and good hand. Note there are six first-person statements there in verse 14. If we have any question as to who was causing what to be done to the Israelites, there are six places where God says, I, 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 which highlights the fact that it was God who the Israelites would now have to contend with. Uh, We see similar language in Deuteronomy 32, 39, where it says, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and no one can deliver out of my hand. In Hosea's context, God was the one who was ultimately fighting against Israel and contending against Israel as he worked through Assyria to bring his own people to their knees. Well, as we come upon our final verse here in chapter 5, we see another shift in Hosea's prophecy. And this is our final point or heading for this evening. This is Israel's faith predicted. Israel's faith predicted. Verse 15, I will go away, it says. So this is still God speaking. And return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So this verse 15 starts by carrying over some of this lion-type language from the preceding verse, where God, it says, is going back like a lion returning to its lair. He says, until, but then he goes on and says, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. He's going back to the lair until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. See, the ultimate purpose of the Lord's judgment and chastisement and discipline of his people was to restore them. And a time of acknowledgement and repentance was still available to them. In fact, all that we've seen so far in this chapter, the chastisement and the discipline in verse 2, God's withdrawal in verse 6, his judgment in verse 11 up to the present verse, it was all designed to bring his people Israel back to a place of repentance, back to him. And it didn't have to be this way. Uh, Israel didn't have to choose its spiritually adulterous and stiff-necked ways, but they did. And the result was that they brought on themselves these increasingly intense forms of judgment. They, they chose the overwhelming flood and the rot-inducing moth and, and the predatory lion. And yet at the end of verse 15, we see that there was still hope. He says, I will go away. And return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So as we conclude, the day of judgment is nearly upon Israel. In vain, they've blown the trumpet as they seek to defend themselves. In vain, they've tried to warn Judah to the south. In vain, they've attempted to forge an alliance with Assyria or get help from Assyria in the north. But it's not going to work because God has withdrawn his protection from them. And God has himself become their enemy. And it is with him that they must now contend. But even then, we get this note of hope again in verse 15. It's just, it's, it's like a, 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 it's a, a truck could drive through this, explaining how, how hopeful this is. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. The door is left open for Israel to repent and be restored. That's the cliffhanger for this week, and we'll get into Hosea 6 next Sunday night. And in Hosea 6, we're going to see Hosea once again uh, tenderly and beautifully appealing to wayward Israel. In fact, to end our time tonight, I'm going to give you that teaser for next week. We're going to read just the first three verses of Hosea 6, the next few lines of the prophecy. Uh, That's going to help us end on this higher note and remind us of this unchanging God that was addressing Israel during Hosea's day, but the same unchanging God that we worship today and the same unchanging God who speaks through his word. Hosea 6, verses 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. 
His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this chance to study your word this evening. We thank you for the the many lessons that the book of Hosea teaches us. The lessons about you and your character, uh, your holiness, your, your, your demand for faithfulness from your people, your, your unchanging faithfulness, your hatred of sin, your love for righteousness, your patience, your mercy, your long-suffering nature, your loving kindness. These traits, these attributes of who you are are, are stitched throughout the book of Hosea And I pray that as we go through it, we are continually in awe of who you are. We aren't the Israelites. We're the church. But there certainly are ways in which we can benefit from this book. Behold your character. Behold what pleases you, what honors you, and what brings you glory. And so we, as those who have been bought by the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, simply say thank you for this book. Thank you for its lessons, but most importantly, thank you for the God who stands behind it. You, God, our God, the God of all. We give you thanks and praise, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.